Hello friends, today I have a slightly different type of episode, a bonus episode for you. In light of the recent mass shootings in the United States, I wanted to bring back Dr. Bob Bauer to talk about how we cope with such tragedies. And it's unfortunate that we have these cases again and again in our country, but um, not going to have a debate over guns and all that in this particular chat, but... Dr. Bob made some time for me to ask him about how, according to his uh, expertise, how we can cope with these tragedies, whether we are directly related to or affected by the shootings or other kinds of tragedies or are witnesses to it, where we are a little bit more distant from it, but still emotionally affected by it. So I hope you get a lot out of this episode. I had a more in-depth conversation with Dr. Bob previously. I put the link in the show notes, so if you want a little bit more background about him and about uh, his uh, career origin story, so to speak, that I have with other psych professionals, you can go back to that episode and, and listen to that. So I want to go ahead and play our conversation related to coping with tragedies. Okay, welcome back, uh, Dr. Bob, and uh, I brought you back under more trying circumstances. At the time of this recording, we're all talking and thinking about recent mass shootings. It it almost seems like no matter when we record this, it's probably going to be right short after some sort of event like this, some sort of tragedy. So I wanted to bring you on because that's your specialty in terms of talking about loss and grief. So I want to talk about, have you talk about coping uh, especially for the survivors or even for us observers. We're not, we may not be directly, uh, let's say, related to people who are victims or families of victims, but we feel this as well emotionally. So let's just dive into it. What what you got? Great. Well, I think about when we have problems in our life, um, what would psychology have to say about it? And um, there are three sort of general methods of coping with any problem in, in your life. And I, mm-hmm. I think these are effective ways to look at coping with our feelings about these tragedies that have occurred. So the three sort of steps um, okay. or parts, appraisal focused, we're going to talk about that, emotion focused and problem focused. In other words, sort of a three prong attack when we have something terrible going on in our life. So let's take a look at a, a appraisal focus first. Um, One of the things that we know is that it doesn't matter what event happens in our life, it's how we perceive it, it's how we appraise it. And Mm -hmm. so one of the things that psychologists want us to know, want the rest of the world to know, is that human behavior is extremely complex. And that one of the things that we do with that complexity is that we we become cognitive misers. You know, it's a great term. And you know, a miser is someone who saves something. So a cognitive miser is someone who you know, saves their brain's energy. During the course of, the, of uh, an average day, 20, uh, 30% of our brains, uh, uh, 30% of our energy is used by our brain. And mm-hmm. um, so we, our brain is always finding ways to sort of save that energy for more complex issues. So it's a limited supply is what you're saying. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And, and that we, you know, so when we, 
eat, we take a shower and we drive. We don't have to think very much. But mm -hmm. when we have like sitting in a classroom or listening to this presentation, you know, our brain has to, you know, take a little more energy on that. And so I say to my students, um, my opinion is that when we think about our brain as complex as it is, that our brain, in my opinion, has really two major functions. Mm -hmm. One is to reduce pain, you know, discomfort, and the other is to make sense out of the world. So when a tragedy happens, you know, we have we have to, you know, make a decision to some extent on how much pain we're going to take in, mm -hmm. right? And that you know, think about the world in terms of concentric circles. That when a tragedy happens to us and our loved ones, that's our inner circle, and we then feel more pain. As we begin to move outward, it happens to our neighbor, now it happens to our community, happens to our city, to our state, to our mm -hmm. nation, and so on, then it may not be as painful. And of course, we're all individuals, so some of us take on more pain than right. maybe we should at times because mm -hmm of something that happened on the other side of the world, you know, like the war in Ukraine, right. you know, some people are really feeling it. So um, uh, that's one of the ways to think about, um, you know, how we cope with the world. We want to reduce the pain that, that we feel and we want to make sense out of it. And of course, with a tragedy like this, you know, everyone's trying to make sense out of it. Everyone's yeah. got their own opinion on why this happened and who we blame and you know, now we're blaming the police and we're focused away from the shooter and you know we we blame guns and so on so so uh one of the things that i always come across when i talk to people about loss is attribution theory mm -hmm. and i love that theory and i know you know what, yeah. all about it dr chong and that is the idea that when an event occurs our brain demands to know why why and so dependent upon how much pain we're in we then may want to try to make more more sense of why this thing happens and so we come up with all kinds of scenarios as to why you know something horrible mm -hmm. like this would would take place and so our brain then um again often goes towards simplistic reasons and we come up with uh some people call it catastrophic thinking hmm. that this happened and therefore more horrible things are going to happen. And we say things like always and never and should, and I must, and I ought mm -hmm. to, and so on. And so for your listeners who catch themselves saying this terrible thing happens and therefore more terrible things are going to happen, that's called catastrophic thinking. And, yeah. and that's part of this appraisal process. And so we keep, you know, um, you know, in this loop of uh, horrible things have happened, horrible things are going to happen tomorrow, and they might. And it's a way for us to defend our our um, our pain by saying, you know, terrible things can happen again. We can have another shooting tomorrow, and that yeah. then causes us more pain. So what I'm suggesting is that one of the ways to cope is to watch your shoulds and you must and you need to and you ought to and you know always and never and so on because those sort of catastrophic words then take us down this pathway that more more terrible things are going to happen so we have to find this balance between preparing ourselves for the next terrible thing and yet on the other hand not saying you know it's going to happen oh you know my oh my what can i do yeah so one of the ways to deal with tragedies in an appraisal sense 
is also to use what's called positive reinterpretation and to say to ourselves, as terrible as this thing is, what good could come out of it? What positive can come out of it? What can we find in here? And I, I'm not saying ignore the negative. What I'm saying is pay attention to the negative and take in the negative to whatever extent your brain will allow it. But on the other hand, say to yourself, what positive things can come out of it? What can I do in my life? You know, um, these people have lost um, their loved ones. Is there something I can do today to connect with my loved ones? Mm. And, you know, because we're not guaranteed of having them another day. So that's sort of the appraisal part of it. Mm. I think we talked about that last time we spoke with regards to just coping during the pandemic. Right. Yes. I remember you yeah. talked about that. Yeah, that there's, yeah. there's death around us. It's awful. We're shut down. But there, there were positive things that came out of that experience as well. Yes. Yeah. yeah, you're exactly right. All right, so let's take a look. So we talked about the appraisal focused. In mm -hmm. other words, how do I perceive what is going on around me? The second um, approach is emotion focused. And one of the ways to you know, understand this is to understand grief. And that you know, we often think, I think I mentioned last time, that grief is you know, people crying and weeping and wailing, but, but it's much more than that. And so years ago, I was asked to give a workshop on you know, what is grief? And I ended up with like 65 different ways that we deal with, that we, that we experience grief. And so I put them into five categories. So one is, of course, the cognitive category, right? The, the way we think about grief and all of the ways that are related to that. The emotional part of grief, um, the guilt, the anger, the sadness, the depression, the confusion, all of these crazy things that go along when, when someone is coping with grief. A third is physical. That is, when I grieve, um, I, I you know, ex experience it physically. Yeah. Um, I deal with parents whose children have died. I'm gonna be giving a talk this, this weekend um, to parents and also widowed people. And one of the things that I ask them is, where is your grief in your body? You know, um, is it in your gut? Is in your throat? Is it up here in your head? And to understand that when we grieve, we grieve physically. We have sleep problems. We have yeah. food problems. We have constipation, diarrhea, all these headaches and all these kinds of things that go along with this thing called grief. So, you know, and part of that is to ask ourselves, okay, if I'm grieving in some way, if that's one of my emotional reactions, what can I do to take care of my body? What can I do to get the sleep that I need? Should I take a brisk, you know, if I'm angry, should I take a brisk walk? Should I roll up my windows in my car and, and yell and scream, not at another person, but just to get it out? Yeah. And that's called catharsis, you know, mm -hmm. emotional cleansing, getting it out, getting it out in a positive way, not again at another person. And then another part of the emotional way of coping is to indulge yourself. What are ways that you can take care of yourself? Mm. You know, whether it's eating comfort food or, you know, sitting with a person that you care for, watching a good movie, distracting yourself. You know, um, those are ways that, you know, we can deal with the emotionality of the things that go along, go um, on around us. It sounds like it's, it's about weathering the storm, right? Yes. 
not yeah. and, and it's not about overreacting to these bodily symptoms to the point of let's say drowning out with alcohol or painkillers or, or things like that at some level we have to feel it and ride it out right but then also use those methods you described in terms of yeah we need distraction right we need you know the occasional comfort food just to take our mind off this physical pain but not to go overboard with any kind of coping mechanism that could be unhealthy in the long run yes that's how that's how i'm thinking about when i listen to you talk is it's about just riding through that really terrible storm and until and that that storm may never pass i think that's what we talked about before it, you know there may be dark clouds for a long 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 time yeah no that's a great summary because yeah. we're you know we have to ask ourselves is well, what can i do to take care of myself mm-hmm. so another um way that another sort of category of grief is a spiritual category you know asking yourself maybe do i have a spiritual belief is it my religion can comfort me is prayer going to help me or maybe it's just you know asking yourself again you know people's lives can be cut short so quickly what am i doing with my life what you know what is the purpose of my life am i you know can i refocus my energy and what i think are by values in life and you know what can i do to you know live those each day and so it's um you know taking that grief and channeling it channeling it into into something positive that you're you're, you're going to feel good about another related phenomenon with uh emotion focused is something called terror management theory and this says that humans you know have a need for self-esteem you know especially when they're aware of their own death. And so one of the things that happens when we're more aware of our death is we end up, you know, going back to our our cultural beliefs and our spiritual beliefs and we huddle with the people around us who agree with us. We all have this sense of self-preservation and, you know, when that death awareness, you know, comes into our life and reminds us one more time how fragile life really is. Um, we then go back to, you know, uh, to our cultural beliefs and um, that people then often work harder at defending it. And we see it with people, mm. you know, today saying, here's the solution to this terrible tragedy. Right. That happened. And what do they do? They go back to, you know, what's comfortable for them. And so terror management theory says, you know, this is how we react because death is in our face. Yeah, and I'm seeing these dialogues on social media, which is not a good idea, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> when someone posts something, I'm thinking, uh-oh, here we go. And then it has like 100 comments. And you can just sort of tell, of course, you know, the different camps people are in, let's say politically or spiritually yes. or whatever you want to call it. And there's very little listening going on, right? They're just so entrenched yes. that this is the only way or belittling others who have a different opinion. And that's what's tragic to me is just observe, as an observer, I try not to get into it, of course, but I just observe this infighting going on after a tragedy. And uh, that, that just makes me really sad that th- that's how that, you know, that's how people respond. Yeah. Yeah. They go back to, you know, mm-hmm. cultural beliefs and um, other people, you know, be darned, uh, be damned that, you know, they don't agree with what, what we agree with. And that's, that's what death often does to us. And um, you're right, it, it, rather than bringing people together in comfort and caring, it sometimes drives people apart. And you know, that's, that's sad. And so, 
so it is for your listeners to you know say to yourself who are the people who think like I do who believe like I do who can support me um, in ways that are going to make me feel better and bring down that that pain that we talked about so we got appraisal focused um, how we perceive things we got emotion focused how do I deal with the emotions that I'm experiencing and then um, a third one is problem focused in other words you know what can I do about this problem and so what we focus then in is brainstorming all possible solutions, you know, talking to people about, you know, what can you do? What can I do that can, you know, make this, make me feel better about this? And to, you know, as before, channel that energy into something that's going to be positive. Um, this weekend, when I meet parents who've experienced the death of a child, uh, some of them have stepped forward in leadership positions. They've channeled that energy after a couple of years, a few years of of being in deep grief to help other people and to, you know, step up and say, you know, I, I want to be a chapter leader. I want to, I want to uh, give the help that that I've received. And so that relates to this thing called social support. And so when we think of support, social support, we can think of it in in three different ways. One way is what's called emotional social support. And of course, what that means is who out there can be a good listener to me? Who's not going to judge me? Who's just going to sit down and listen to what's going on? I talk to my students about this. Actually, I put a, a good listening um, segment on um, YouTube, um, five parts on how to be a good listener, things that all counselors know mm. and are trained to. But I think we all need you know, we don't have to go to a counselor. Usually we, we just need that one person who's going to sit down with us. And so emotional social support. And we've all been in a situation where we have a problem. We sit down, we talk to someone about it, and they get it. Mm -hmm. They say things back to us. And we say to them, yes, yes, that's exactly what I'm talking about, mm -hmm. right? And those are the kind of people that we need in our life. We're not going to judge us. We're not going to minimize with what we're saying to them. And they haven't solved the problem. It's just that one other human being on this planet got it and how great that feels. So that's emotional social support. And so, again, for your listeners to think about, you know, who out there is that good listener to me? Or, or maybe um, I need to go online and look at that good listening those good listening suggestions and maybe offer them a couple, you know, because sometimes we sit down with a person and we tell them our problem and they think they have to fix it. Right. You've seen this all the time, Jack, right. With, mm -hmm. you know, people come in and saying, Oh no, here's, here's how you're going to fix this up. And what we really just need is for them to listen. And sometimes that's what we have to say ahead of time. I'm going to talk to you about a problem I have. You don't have to fix it. You don't have to give me suggestions. Just, just, I just want to know that you've heard me. They're not coming for advice. Yeah. They I just need a sounding board just, yes, just yes, to be there exactly. for emotional support. And how powerful that can be. So that's emotional social support. The second type is called material or instrumental social support. This is all part of the problem-focused way of coping. And in this one, it's like, you know, people do something for us. You know, I, I teach the class on understanding AIDS still after all these years i mm. never dreamed that i'd be still teaching it after 30 more than 30 years and i give my students a handout on if you have a person who you know needs help here are 35 things you can do you know 
You can uh, walk their dog. You can cook them dinner. You can take them out to dinner. You can mow their lawn. You can write. That's material social support. When my sister's husband died 12 years ago, she was suddenly at age 50, a widow. And mm. her husband was a plumber and he built, you know, half their house. And, uh, you know, it was amazing. But her house started falling apart. So who did she call? My son. My son is Mr. Fix-It. Probably all of you know someone like that. He didn't get it from me, trust me. Okay? <laughs> but he knows how to fix things. And he'd go over to the house and he and he showed her how to work a drill and how to work a Dremel and how to you know do all these things that her husband knew, knew how to do. And that's material social support. He's not a guy who's going to be able to sit down and listen to how terrible it is to be a widow, but he knows how to help people. Yeah. And that's those are the kind of people we need in life as well. And then a third type of, social support is informational social support. That is giving us information, finding a video, finding something online, giving us an article, referring a book, you know, um, something where people can read about it and go, oh, you know, uh, someone who's died from suicide, their loved one has died from suicide. And so they read a book on, you know, what are, what have other people experienced? You know, it's powerful, powerful stuff. So, those then are three different ways of looking at um, uh, social support, um, emotional, um, instrumental, and informational. Yeah. 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 When I, when I was thinking about instrumental, you know, the, the fix it, it could be something as simple as providing someone a couch to sleep on so they're not alone, you know? just to provide someone with shelter, just to give somebody a ride, like you said, you know, just anything that just could uh, make their day a little bit easier, right? Yes, yeah. yes. And quite often people in the, you know, in the midst of their pain, never forget that, some little gesture that you gave to them. Um, yeah. And then, yeah. I, you know, I love the quote by um, Maya Angelou that says, People may not remember what you said, or they may not remember what you did, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. Hmm. That is my favorite quote because it says so much about what can you do to, you know, support another person. And then the, the last thing in uh, problem-focused um, coping is, you know, fighting against a learned helplessness. You know, we know that what happens in learned helplessness is you get knocked down and you get up and you get knocked down and you get up and you get knocked up. And pretty soon it's like, why should I get up anymore? Right. Mm -hmm. um, and you stay down. And so one of the ways to, you know, to fight against being helpless is a term called self-efficacy. And I know you, you lecture on all these in your class, Jack, these are, you know, great terms that our students learn and realize, yeah. oh, this is good stuff, right? They take a psych class and they walk out of there going, yeah, I know something. Yeah. yeah, anyone can pick up an intro to psych textbook, go to the stress and health chapter, and all these concepts are in there. Yes, yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. So self-efficacy basically says, what do I say to myself? Am I talking myself up or talking myself down? And so saying things like, you know, as terrible as things are in my life right now, I can get through this. I, it doesn't feel like it right now, but I'm going to get through this. You know, they did research on people who eventually stopped smoking. And what, and what do we know is it takes four or five times of quitting before the average smokers are you know, ready to quit. And they found that those smokers who said things like, you know, I don't know if I can do this. 
I don't, you know, the nicotine is so powerful. I, I just don't think I can, you know, make it this. Those are the people who weren't successful. But yeah. Those who were said things like, I am sick of smoking. You know, my kids smell it. They say, daddy, when are you going to stop? You know, and I'm going to do it this time. This is it. I, you know, I, I'm going to, those are the people. Yeah. And so as we go through life, you know, just talk yourself up rather than talking yourself down. Can I share a quick example? Uh, back in the day, I was a research assistant at MD Anderson Cancer Center in the tobacco research area. So this is what primed this memory was that when people come into our programs, these are the ones you advertise free research for smoking cessation. You want to quit smoking, you know, we give you free resources and, and participate in a study, right? And so we give them a questionnaire, you know, about just ask a lot of different things about their household, that kind of stuff. And then one question in particular is just exactly what you said about whether we can predict that this individual just at this time will succeed or likely not succeed was the question of self-efficacy. You know, how determined are you? Do you really want to quit smoking? Right? It might be on a one to five scale, that kind of thing, right? So, so if they, they have, if they rate, um, I'm, like you said, I'm, I'm just at my wit's end, I really need to try versus I'm not sure. <laughs> the I'm not sure people generally never, never succeed at it at that point anyway in their life. Exactly. What do I say to myself? Mm -hmm, Great. Mm -hmm. And so the last thing, uh, part of problem focused is asking yourself, what can I do about this? What can I do about this tragedy? Um, and then take that energy and put it in a way that you're going to feel good about yourself. You don't want to look back and say, you know, I should have done more of this or less of that or whatever. And, you know, feel all that guilt. It's like finding some little thing. It doesn't have, doesn't have to be a big thing. Some of you know the story of a woman named Candace Leitner. You don't know her name, but you know what she did when her daughter was killed by a drunk driver who had been and who had back then they call them DWIs, driving while intoxicated. Um, and he had done it like he had been stopped like seven times. And then the eighth time ended up killing her daughter. And what did she do? She took that energy and channeled it into mothers against drunk driving, changing state laws of, you know, what, what what's the threshold for determining whether back then in many states, it was like 1.2, then it went to 1.0. Now it's 0.8. And I think it's Utah that has like 0.4 or something, okay? Mm -hmm. So that is um, one little thing that one person did that literally changed the world. For you, it's um, asking yourself, okay, here's a tragedy. You know, I feel helpless, but is there something that I can do? Whether it's saying to your, the people around you that you, loved one, that you love them, or it's, you know, joining an organization and saying, you know, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to do something about this. And so there they are, appraisal-focused, emotion-focused, and problem-focused. Three different, you know, prongs of attack that we can use when, you know, a tragedy occurs in our life like happened last week. Thanks for sharing, Dr. Bob. And I really appreciate you making time. This is sort of a last-minute thing that, uh, and you just said, oh, how about the this date, you know, and, uh, you know, it wasn't two weeks from now, it wasn't a month from now, it was just like, oh, okay, sure, yeah, let's, let's just do this and talk about it right away, because I think people need to hear it. Thanks again for squeezing me into your schedule. Great, thank you. Thanks for doing this, Derek.